Welcome back, everybody, as we finish out the week and as we um, continue to move through the book of Exodus in the 12th chapter today, starting with verse 13. You might remember that yesterday um, they were uh, the people of Israel, the Passover had happened, the plague of the death of the firstborn uh, falls on Egypt, and the people are sent away. They urge them to go. And so we, we pick up that story today, verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, and with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloths on their shoulders, the Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. We can stop there, Michael. So th- this is kind of what we had mentioned earlier, this business about not only are the people going to escape from Egypt, but they're going to go with significant um, material blessing as well, that the Egyptians are in such a rush to get the people moving that they actually give them jewels, they give them gold, they give them precious things to hasten them along. Uh, Their fear is the longer Israelite stays, the worse it's going to be for Egypt. This is proven true throughout the plagues. And now moved by that kind of fear, they, they decide that there's nothing they have that isn't worth getting rid of the Israelites. And, and this is an important word that we end with, Michael. And so they plundered the Egyptians because we don't, I don't want to overdo this because we've mentioned it many times, but it does tie into that, that conquering, that war language that we've made a point of recognizing throughout the story so far. I don't want to belabor this, but I think it's worth pointing out, Clint, that here in verse 33, it's the Egyptians. It's not Pharaoh. It's not the officials. Those are characters we've had a lot of uh, in the story thus far. Here, it's the Egyptians, the people, the common people, the the nation. There's a kind of unified voice happening here, Clint, to say um, that at this point, um, we're pulling back for just a moment. The Pharaoh is going to reappear in the story, but we're pulling back for just a moment to see uh, that this is uh, it is a mass departure, and it is being sought and pushed along by the entire nation of Egypt. That that the the conquering has been so complete, it is to have touched every life in Egypt. It's it's painting a picture that leaves no room, Clint, for uh, really any any question about the the thoroughgoingness of this departure. Yeah, I mean, as we've seen. Toward the end of this plague narrative, uh, Egypt is utterly defeated. I think that's 100% uh, in the story. So we'll continue here, verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed crowd also went with them, and livestock in great numbers, flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough. They had brought from Egypt. It was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provision for themselves. This is an interesting passage. Um, the scripture, we've already seen it. Um, well, we, we read over it in a couple of instances, but there's already been mention of this idea of unleavened and don't wait for the yeast to work in the dough. Uh, in the current 
celebration of the Seder meal, the Passover meal, they use unleavened bread. Uh, many times in the Jewish calendar, there are festivals that involve unleavened bread as a remembrance of the Passover. What's interesting here is, and, and again, this may be one of those situations in which we have two different sources from which this material is drawn, but they had not prepared any provisions. About a chapter or so ago, they were told to make provisions, and we were told that they did what Aaron and Moses had told them to do. So it's not exactly clear what this means, or if maybe they hadn't listened, or if there's just two different ways of looking at it. But regardless, the idea here is that they're so rushed they're so grateful, there's such a hurry to leave Egypt that they don't have time to make bread dough, that they eat unleavened bread. And this be- this becomes a pretty important symbol of the Passover. Uh, yeah, I think there are two things in this section worth raising. Uh, Clint, you named the first one, the hurriedness of this effort that they're moving quickly. The second, I would just mm-hmm. point out 600,000 men. That's men, not counting uh, women and children. Uh, the text literally says besides children. Uh, and then you've got the flocks and herds. The The point is that this is a massive number. When we were told that the people of Israel have flourished, uh, we now see that it has been in just huge, huge amounts. And so, yeah, a huge crowd and uh, they're moving quickly. Those are kind of the core themes in this paragraph here. And I'm not sure we'll make a decision on this probably next week, but um, in the early part of chapter 13, there's a whole festival of unleavened bread. In fact, they eat it for seven days, and it's all a remembrance. Um, I don't know that we'll go into that, but just to make sure that you get the connection, that this continues to be a a really important part of the story. Then we finish here uh, from verse 40. The time the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout all their generations. So what's really interesting about this part of the story, I think, Michael, is that there's clearly someone looking both backwards and forwards. There's, there is this moment in the story that is told about the actual event. But it is told from looking back by someone who has celebrated these festivals. Um, you know, typically the author is thought to be Moses. Um, if that's the case, if you want to, if you want to hold to that idea, then Moses is anticipating a time in which these things will be kept. But what's interesting, I think, is it gives the story an interesting flavor because uh, along with the history, there's some sort of forecasting that is done. And both of those things are happening at once. So the, the same night, and it will be done by the Israelites throughout all the generations. And then again, we get these descriptions of a festival that they're going to keep and uh, the Passover that's going to be celebrated. And so there is both a looking back and a looking past the event that I think gives this um, a, a kind of uh, narrative uniqueness. Well, and... The vigil, we have that language here, the uh, vigil is to be kept for the Lord. What is the vigil for? What is the purpose? The purpose is to remember that the Lord is God, right? That that we've been told that already, that there's a kind of uh, claiming that has happened in the God's deliverance of the people. And there is a reminder of that. The vigil is for the purpose of passing down this tradition and this history. 
And so there's a sense in which this rescue effort is leading to a particular practice, a habit of worship. I mean, we might not think of it in that language, but what's happening here is an institution of a thing that the people are called to do each and every year as a way of pointing them back to God. It's a way of them being reminded of the deliverance that God brought, the fact that God was faithful, right? And then also uh, to remind the people that in their everyday, they should trust upon the one who was faithful to carry them out in this extraordinary day. So there's a kind of people-making, God-defining, relationship-concretizing that's happening here, Clint. And I, I just think Christians are removed from that, maybe by some of our cultural practice, but there is uh, in the even the Christian narrative a sense in which we have been claimed and called by God, and, and we see in this, I think, a loose kind of mirroring of our own sense of what it means to be those who who keep Sabbath for the sake of the one who's called us as his own. Yeah, we have some remnants of it, I think, Michael, maybe in a season like Lent or celebration of Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, the idea that we use some of those um, days to help us reframe and refocus and remember the story. Um, But we certainly have less of that than, I think, the Jewish calendar. Um, Sort of, let's finish out the chapter here as we finish out the week. Verse 43, Lord said to Moses, Aaron, this is the ordinance for Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he's been circumcised. No bound or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the animal outside the house. You shall not break any of the bones. The whole congregation of Israel will celebrate it. If an alien resides with you and wants to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, all his males must be circumcised. Then he may draw near and celebrate and be regarded as a native of the land. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and the alien who resides among you. All the Israelites did as the Lord commanded, Moses and Aaron. That very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, company by company. Uh, Again, I think this gives us an insight that um, we're doing two things here. We're anticipating celebration of the Passover. We're already beginning to get some rules about who can eat it and who can't eat it, which may seem ironic. Uh, in a festival designed in celebration of the people being set free, the idea that there's now going to be separation between the insiders and the outsiders, depending on if they're circumcised or if they're not, other, other aspects as well. But there is a kind of holiness attributed to this event that is protected by the legal code. And, and we're going to get a chance in Exodus to see lots of instances of this. This might be the really the first um, glimpse we've seen of it. I'm trying to remember. I, I think it may be. But the, a lot more of this kind of stuff is coming as the Israelites begin to pay very particular attention to how to protect these events and these moments from being diluted or being disrespected. And um, I don't know that this is, there's a lot here in terms of devotional material, Michael, but it's sort of an interesting end cap to the story. Uh, when, that day this week, Clint, you were out, I mentioned uh, the talk about how there's some priestly emphasis throughout mm-hmm. this story. Yeah. I would argue that we're seeing that sure. here today, this idea that there's a priestly code of who's in, who's out, what is pure, 
what isn't. I just want to make you know clear here this idea of the circumcised is in it, um, the animal not breaking bones. I mean, all of this has themes that we're going to find later in books like Leviticus about particular ways in which one can and should practice. Um, but the thing I really wanted to point out that I think is really interesting is um, verse 48 here. He shall be regarded as a native of the land, which is interesting because remember, these people have no land, right? <laughs> right? They are. They just went out into the wilderness to worship. Um, they they've not in any way claimed a new space as their own. So this is tipping us off to the fact that this is doing that forward looking, uh, as well as telling the story. It, it's letting us know there will be a time in which there is a land. There will be a time in which the people are going to be asking questions about you know who should do this ritual, uh, who shouldn't. Um, those are things that this text is teaching amidst the story itself. Uh, as modern folks, that's not our bent. We like to keep our our past and our teaching separate, and we, we like to tr- sort of keep uh, a boundary between them, but not so much in ancient texts. The, the story is the lesson, and the lesson is the story, and that's what's happening here. And I do think there is a sort of one profound aspect of this, Michael, in verse 49. You know, there shall be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you. In other words, what what that is saying is that when you are living as a nation, there is not going to be division. There there will be a law, there will be a, a code of conduct, and it will apply to everyone equally. The the slave, the alien, they will be expected to live as the people of the land, as the Israelites. But the Israelites on the flip side, will not be able to impose different laws for their own benefit on the alien or the stranger. And when you think of this group coming out of slavery, when you think of the abuse they've suffered, when you think of the oppression that they have lived through at the hands of the Pharaoh, this is an amazing statement. There will be one law, and it will cover everyone. There will not be... um, subdivisions, and people will not be subject to different kinds of treatment. There will be an expectation of all according to the law. And I think that that is really deep considering the experience these people are leaving behind as they leave Egypt. Yeah, I I think that's a really helpful uh, comment, Clint. There's a sense in which the people are even now beginning to name for us the ways that this experience should shape and change the reality of what will be. Um, that there's there's been an experience that has come from this subjection, that's come from this uh, oppression. And uh, from that, uh, they look ahead and they make this daring claim that we should – we should seek to be a just society I, that under the hand of the one who delivers us, God, uh, should be a people that um, rules with uh, with a fair um, hand. And uh, we know, Clint, that that, um, that appears in a text like this and is very difficult to work out in practice if you read the rest of the Old Testament, yeah. right? Um, but it's worth slowing down and, and seeing ideals when they when they work their way up. When when we can look at a thing and say that this is the heart, this is the spirit of what was uh, found. I think that's a really helpful thing to point out. 
Yeah, and I, you know, to some extent, the rest of the story becomes the people trying to live into that and live up to that. And uh, we'll have many opportunities to talk about this, but a pastor once said, uh, you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's hard to get Egypt out of the people. And that will be in some ways a truth that hangs over the rest of the story. So uh, thanks for joining us today. If you can be with us next week, we'd love to have you back as we continue through and as we begin to look at the transition. The people are out of Egypt, uh, sort of, but Egypt is not yet done with them, nor is the Pharaoh done with them. So there's a little bit of adventure left, and then we'll move.